Good morning, Arizona homeowners. Why don't you come on around this squeaky old gate with me and let's get behind the house and into the yard and see what we have for you today as we walk into this beautiful, beautiful irrigated lot here on the urban farm. We find Mr. Greg Peterson two days before Christmas. What, what did Gary say? Christmas Eve squared. What, uh, what what are you jarring and canning and wrapping for your Christmas gift uh, last minute uh presence here oh my gosh so <laughs> last week was my sweetie heidi's office party and they always have a uh, you know a gift exchange so i always take a big bag of citrus and i'll tell and it's and it's one of those gift steal things you know where where they can steal the gift from somebody and my bag of citrus is always a winner it always gets <laughs> stole the most times and it gets passed around so much it's half juice by the time the last person <laughs> exactly gets <it>. exactly <laughs> Wonderful. I, I have a dream that our pecan trees will be that one day. We oh, have four. Yes. And yes. last year we, or excuse me, two years ago we got one. One pecan? One pecan. Oh my gosh. And Which was actually a surprise because they said don't expect anything for seven years and this was year two. Oh wow. Cool. Year three, nothing. Mm -hmm. This year I got 26. Nice. So I have about another 10 years I'll have yeah. enough pecans for those party giveaways to sack up fresh from yeah. the Whitman Plantation. Well, if if I remember correctly, you have a lot of pecan trees. I have five. Okay, that's a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll get to be 60 feet tall and, and you know, produce. We're just waiting on it. Yeah, we're exactly. waiting on it. Exactly. One one slow year at a time. So we're we're excited. They'll do a lot more than just the pecans. They're on the north side of the property oh and we've kind of got a little irrigated mm -hmm. spot and it's where the cars come in and we'll have a little tree fort out there we got big plans for a nice little uh, irrigated shade shade little pecan orchard sweet so. sweet but we're not there yet <laughs> you know what the <laughs> no, best the, time to plant the best time to plant a tree i think this is an old proverb from somewhere the best time to plant a tree 25 years ago or today or today <laughs> get it get it moving get it moving it, and what are we going to get moving today? So the really cool thing about Arizona is we can pretty much grow 12 months a year. So we can have – and in fact, in Phoenix, there's food every day in my yard. Uh, it's, it's an odd day when we don't pick something and eat it. And there's That's a, a vacation day. You're not home. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although when we go on vacation, we pack our chest full of – uh, you know, our ice chest full of all kinds of goodies from the urban farm. So we actually take stuff with us. So Excellent. There you go. And there's the steps to starting a garden. It's not just go put some dirt out and plant some seeds. You've got to do some work beforehand. You've got to do some thought, thought process to make sure that you're heading the right direction. Because there's nothing that's going to stop your garden quicker than putting it on the north side of a house. It's never going to get any sunlight and your stuff's just not going to grow. So you have to start thinking through these things so that you don't hit any of the pitfalls that will, you know, screech your garden project to a halt. What may seem like, hey, this is a perfect shade spot and I'll, I can have my garden in the shade so I'm not mm -hmm. out in the blistering sun may not be the best plan for your plants if you want a good crop. Right. Right. And, you know, really that's – so in permaculture, I was going to say really that's the first step is to look at the sun. But in permaculture, what we do is we observe. You go spend time in your space. In fact, often I will tell people to spend a year observing their space to make sure that 
they know what's happening in the space. So if you get a really good monsoon rain, where does the water go? What are you going to do with it? Uh, perfect example is about 10 years ago, the people across the street from me have a west-facing front of their house, and they had two ancient grapefruit trees in their front yard. And the house sold, the new owners were there, and in week one, they were cutting down these 40-foot-tall grapefruit trees. Mm. This was their western shade on their house. They didn't live in the house long enough to know the value of those trees. And you do that by observing. And in permaculture, we call that a class one error. So you don't want to make any class one errors. Now, planting something in a pot or starting a small garden, that's not what I'm talking about. But when you're going to do major stuff in your yard, spend a year observing. Pay attention to the seasons and the, the shadows. We're going to talk more about that in a little while. Uh, the shadows and everything that's going on in the space so you know what is happening there. If you're looking to do your own type of urban farm or uh, what, what's that other word? Agriscaping? Where... Yeah, or just your garden, you know, just putting in a garden, uh, you know, putting a, a five by five box in or a four by five box in, you really need to pay attention to these following next three or four points that we're going to make. And it's, it's important to set yourself up for success. There's yeah. a lot of people that you know, there's nothing wrong with trial by error or learning by failure. I I'm, uh, do that more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I should have just listened instead of trying myself. But if I do it and I fail, I'm I'm more likely to remember it yep. and experience it than just hearing it secondhand. And uh, you know, e- even if I do it, I'm curious just to try, just to see. You know, yeah. I know this this isn't supposed to work by theory, but I I just got to know. Well. Being able to have some success and some wins along the way yeah. will keep you from getting burnt out. Exactly. People, people come to my tours all the time, and there's a lot going on at the urban farm. I've lived there for 28 years. I've been studying permaculture for 26 of those 28 years and installing permaculture nat- nature-style projects in the place that kind of propel themselves forward. So when somebody comes to a tour at the urban farm, there's so much going on. I tell them not to get overwhelmed. And then I tell them, pick one thing. If you see one thing that's going on in the yard, pick that and do that. Be successful at that and then move to the next one. That way you're not overwhelming yourself. Because what happens when we get overwhelmed? We get overwhelmed, we shut down, game over. We stop playing. And that's the last thing I want is for people to stop playing. So you just, you know, thinking. thinking, And often it's right when they're about to get their first great harvest or the yeah. first great, you know, you're, you're right on the threshold is usually where people don't see that they just, they're, they're almost to the ridge and they're on the way down on the other side, but they just, they, they can't bring themselves to get to that saddle, get to the peak. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So really the first thing you need to know is where's the sun at? So you know that the sun is in different places in the sky throughout the year. On December 21st, which, you know, we just passed. So uh, on December 21st, the sun's the lowest in the sky. So that means all of our shadows are going to be really long. And it's farthest south on December 21st. On June 21st, it's farthest north. And when I say north, it's really straight up in the sky. So setting your smartphone for December, well, go out and look today at noon Two days off the 21st. It's not a huge difference. You're fine. (laughs) And then June 21st, and kind of get an idea of where those shadows are at and how long they are. If you're gardening on a northern exposure, a a north side of a structure, that's the worst place to garden. Because 
that's going to only get sun in the harshest time of the year. So paying attention to that. If I, if I was going to put something on the north side of a structure, I'd want to know on December 21st how long the shadow is. And then I would push my garden out past that shadow on December 21st, 22nd, 23rd, you know, go out and do that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so knowing where the sun is at is a really, really important piece of this puzzle. Uh, the next thing is, go ahead. Well, that, that also tells you what you may be planting as well. Some of those may do better in a little bit of a shade time or depending on uh, where that, that, you know, I was made the analogy of you know, planting under a shade tree. Well, mm-hmm. if you're just not, maybe, maybe you're a snowbird or you have a second residence in the summer uh-huh. and you're not planting in the summertime. So underneath that shade tree might work in the wintertime because if the, if it's far south, uh-huh. it's still getting that light coming in. Whereas in the summertime, you're not out there. It doesn't matter. Are you reading my notes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have them. <laughs> that's the next thing we're going to talk about. And we call those microclimates. 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 Okay. Microclimates. You, you ever been hiking? You go hiking and you go down into a ravine and it gets 15 degrees cooler. Oh, or if yeah. you're a scuba diver. I can in, relate to the hiking, not the scuba in diving. In the scuba diving, they're called thermoclines. You're swimming along and all of a sudden it's 15 degrees cooler. So in our yards, those are we call those microclimates. And what makes a warmer mi- well, what do you think makes a warmer microclimate? Oh, south, <laughs> south and west facing. South and west facing concrete. So a block wall, mm-hmm. a driveway, a street. These are all things that warm up our spaces. Now that could be a great thing in the winter time, and it could be a great thing in the summertime, maybe. But you got to go figure that out. I had, uh, oh, and you mentioned Western exposure. I did the garden for the Calico Cow on Central for probably a decade when they were there at Dunlap and Central. And they had a northwestern facing concrete back patio. Okay. And the garden in there was four feet wide and 60 feet long. And so it was in a really warm microclimate because of all the concrete, because of the Western exposure. What I learned very quickly in that space was that I could do nothing from May 1st to about September 30th. But the rest of the year, we grew everything. So it was one of those warmer microclimates in the winter that we took advantage of. So really identifying your microclimates so that you can... Um, you know, best plant what needs to be planted in that space. That's one of your first tasks. And when you're looking at microclimates and mm-hmm. you're talking about those different things, are there, as a homeowner, you know, we mentioned the block walls, we mentioned the north, you know, the facing direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about tree canopies? What about um, other bushes and shrubs? I mean, what about lawns? Yeah, all of that stuff. All of that stuff provides a, you know, a cooler microclimate. In fact, often I will tell people on the west side of your property, on the west side of your garden, plant shade. And that's what we tell everybody. Yeah. You mean you do it for um, different purposes for the urban farming aspect, Mm -hmm. but for the builder aspect. Oh my gosh, it's huge. Shading your home, yep. <laughs> you know, it's both shade, and we both like it on the west side for two different reasons. But yeah. sh- shade's priceless out here. Yeah. Well, and that's really the reason I, the big reason I tell people to plant on the west side is to cool your house. 
Welcome back. You are tuned in to Rosie on the House, your Arizona Saturday morning for tradition for 29 years. And we have just finished putting a couple inches of mulch on top of our shade trees on the west side that are going to be a glorious shade screen in 10 years. But between now and that next 10 years, what's our next step? Nice. You said one thing at a time. We got the west shade done. Let's let's dive into our next thing. Yeah. Well, and you know, a big piece of you just said it. You put your mulch down. Adding, I say six inches of mulch every year around your trees is going to invigorate them so much. You know me, I talk trees all the time. <laughs> uh, and that's not what we're here to talk about today, but you brought it up. Heavy mulch, you know, a good six inches every year, and it breaks down to this amazing soil that has your trees absolutely thrive. And it's cheap. Mulch is cheap. Well, if you can, you know, if you can find it for free, you know, it's, it's somebody <laughs> dumping them in your front yard. So there's a really cool website out there called Chip Drop, and it's for wood chips. Uh, you know, you can coordinate with them and get a load of wood chips. The only problem with wood chips is they, uh, if they drop you a load, you're going to get 20 or 30 cubic yards. <laughs> for those of you that might have a picture of what that is, that's, uh, you know, eight feet wide, eight feet tall and about 25 feet long of wood chips. You might want a couple neighbors in on it or have a designation in your yard that this can just sit yeah. over the next four or five years until you use it all. Yeah, exactly. So really the next step in the process of defining your garden and really planning out your yard is to view, really view your yard as a whole system. It's a nat- in nature, nature works in a circular manner. So what if we took those systems and we plugged them into, you know, into our front and backyards? And in my yard, it looks like this. I have at least a dozen different varieties of herbs and vegetables that come back year after year after year without me having to do anything. Because over the years, I've planted the right kind of seeds, an open pollinated seed, and I let things go to seed like lettuce or nasturtiums or parsley or uh, basil. I've got mint coming up right now. Uh, These are all things that I just let go to seed, and I've put the systems in place, creating healthy soil, which we're going to talk about in the next segment, uh, putting these healthy systems in place and letting nature do the work. It's really, really important. And really what I'm talking about here is permaculture. I like to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. So how do we plug in and work with nature, work in the flow of nature rather than against nature, which we human beings like to do? Work against. Yes. It's very natural to to do that. You scrape the ground, you, yep. you know, all these conventional things that you think are uh, the way the way it is, but you, you are creating a condition to... To work against yourself. Right. Well, you know what cracks me up is these uh, lawn dethatchers, and there may be a reason for them, but I've never figured it out. If you're going in there and taking out all the thatch out of a lawn, that's your organic compost over time. And I actually watched one of our municipalities here do this over the course of about 60 days where they dethatched everything, took out all the organic matter, overseeded it, and then watered it three times a day trying to get the grass to sprout. And what they didn't realize is that that thatch, that organic matter, that's their compost for next season. So that's another way we can actually work with nature. I have a lawn at the urban farm because I'm on a floodwater property. And I abuse the lawn. I cut it way too low. I never fertilize it. And most of the time it looks great. 
because I haven't dethatched in the backyard. The chickens run. And this, the next thing we're going to talk about is chickens. The chickens, I let them run wild in the backyard. And so they're, you know, pooping and and eating bugs and eating weeds and mowing the grass. They mow my grass for me really great. Basically, what I have in the chickens is workers. They're, There's even a book called Chicken Farmer, which talks about how to do that. Now, mm-hmm. uh, we won't get sidetracked. It, it, it's, theirs is a lot more complicated because they actually have like a cart on wheels that you move every so often to make sure right. that the chickens are evenly doing the same yeah. section over and over. Now, exactly. you're, you're much more you're, – you're a lot more natural like, hey, just – Free range. Just let them for, do their yeah. thing. <laughs> well, and here's what you need to know about chickens. They're going to get in your garden if you let them. So they will take out your garden. Uh, so don't let them go there. But And what you just mentioned are called chicken tractors. There's actually a book on chicken tractors. And they're just portable chicken houses that you move the chickens from place to place. Don Titmus over at the Bee Oasis in Mesa and Kari Spencer at the Microfarm Project, they both have gardens that once a quarter they move their chicken run from the garden that it's on to the next one. So the chickens do the cleanup, they do the fertilizing, they do the tilling of the soil. So for three months they're in that on that garden bed. And once they get moved the next three, you know, to the next bed, then they, you know, have a perfectly good bed that's ready to go and fertilized and all you gotta do is plant it. And if you've never owned or sat and observed chickens and you say, what are you talking about tilling? Well chickens oh love to dig. Oh my god. They gosh. love to throw dirt on themselves. That's yep. how they clean their bodies. Yeah. Uh, when they the summer sun starts to warm up, they you know, they burrow down and that cool yep. earth helps keep their body. I mean they they will dig. Like you said, they'll they'll till for you. Oh yeah. Yeah, they're as good of digger as most dogs. <laughs> so so and really, it, and they don't chew as bad, <laughs> and, and they don't chew as bad exactly. So really, viewing your, you know, viewing your space as a, you know, as a part of nature and working with nature than against nature. That's my message for this section. And as we're going to break, we'll come back, and we've got a lot more great talking points. But somebody listening and is interested. I mean, you have so many resources on how to uh, get started. You just go to urbanfarm.org, urbanfarmpodcast.org. Uh, you know, I have three hundred over three hundred episodes on our podcast, and we have free classes at urbanfarm.org and some paid courses and like that. So, urbanfarm.org. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Well, we hope whatever you are out and about doing this, help me out, Gary. Christmas Eve squared. <laughs> My nephew called it Christmas Eve Square. The day before Christmas. so anxious for Christmas. I got it. I like it. Uh, you're doing last-minute shopping, or you're just out and about with friends or guests, or you're just lounging around your house thinking, gosh, I need to find something to do with that bare spot of dirt over there and this urban farm broadcast, and you're kind of getting a little motivated to do something. If you're going to plant something, man, mm-hmm. make sure it's something you at least like to eat. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, 15 years ago, I'd get that question all, all the time. Well, you know, what do I plant? Well, you plant what you love. <laughs> Not so much these days. People have really smartened up the past couple, three years. I don't get that question a whole lot anymore. So that's good. But, but plant what, what you love. But what you're going to eat, you know, every plant grows differently. So you've got your microclimates mm-hmm. and you've got this observation of permaculture and you've got this uh, database you're building in your mind mentally as you're observing. Well, now let's pick what we're going to eat. We pick what you like, and now we, you know we've got to match start? those growing characteristics to what's best in your 
your microclimates mm-hmm. and your property. So what and where to grow? <laughs> so it's really a lot simpler than you made it sound there. Uh, first of all, good. <laughs> first of all, grow what you love. We talked about that. Secondly, start off simple. We talked about that earlier. I had a, a client recently call me, a longtime friend of mine, actually. And she said, my husband and I are thinking about putting in a thousand square foot greenhouse. It's like, really? That's cool. Have you ever grown anything before? <laughs> well, no, that's where we're going to start. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't start there. So I had a five-minute conversation with her, realized that she had a really nice back patio that faces east. Best place to put a garden is on the east side of a structure because that way it's in the shade in the afternoon. And she had some garden pots out back that didn't have anything in them. So in a five-minute conversation with her, I had a, you know, we got her to the point of, okay, I can get some soil you know, some really good potting soil, put them in those pots, put them on the east side. That's where I'll start. So start easy. And then there are so many things you can do. I mean, it's as simple as starting sprouts on your countertop. You know, there's books on sprouts out there or a little pot in your, you know, in a sunny windowsill and grow basil. Here's what I tell people about herbs. They're the simplest thing to grow and the most expensive thing to buy. So plant herbs, plant them in your yard. I have, in my yard, I have mint, basil, oregano, rosemary, cilantro. Um, I know there's three or four, parsley. These all grow wild in my yard. I don't ever have to really go to the grocery store and buy them because they're just there automatically for me. And what's nice about those is if you don't use them regularly, it doesn't matter. They Mm. don't take up a lot of space. Right. They don't take up a lot of water. They add a nice color, nice yep. uh, v- variety of, of yeah. green plant material. Uh, so start with herbs. I mean, that's a really simple place to start. And your neighbors will love you. And uh, the neighbors <laughs> will love you. You know, you can go with pots on a patio. I mentioned that. Garden beds. You can go with raised bed gardens if you want. Uh, that's a super simple way to go. It's not always the best way to go because on a raised bed garden, you've got heat on five sides rather than one. Although there's... All I wouldn't not do it because of the heat. You just need to know that July, August, and September is going to be your hardest time to grow because that's the hottest time. And honestly, growing food in the desert, that's the hardest time to grow. So I've gotten to the place at the urban farm where I grow I grow from September, toward the end of September to about the end of June, and then I pretty much shut my gardens down and let them do whatever they're going to do. So little little rest time for the garden yeah and then if you want to get outside of the box there's tower gardens which are a hydroponic growing system by juice plus which i've got information on if people want to you know reach out to me on that those are pretty cool it's a big big tub at the bottom Mm -hmm. 20 gallon tub at the bottom and it's got a pump and it's like think of a christmas tree it looks like a christmas tree when it's all grown out and the water is pumped from the tub at the bottom up to the top about six feet tall and it trickles down through this tube in the middle and it puts nutrients on the roots of the plants and you know water on the roots of the plants and they just you know they just grow like mad i don't know who invented it but i wish it had been me is yeah no kidding no (laughs) kidding guy's name is tim blank i met him before he's amazing he's absolutely amazing and then there's you know there's aquaponics which is a fish powered garden if you're interested in you know in starting a fish powered garden we actually have some free webinars on it on our website and there's hydroponics which is growing 
you know, with nutrients and water. There's so many different things that you can do gardening-wise. You just have to go with what inspires you. Now, do you have an aquaponic application at the Urban Farm? I don't. I don't. I've done them in the past. Uh, In fact, I was playing with aquaponics in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, my, you know, you don't know, maybe don't know this about me, but my first business here in Phoenix, when I was 15, was 1975. I used to clean, service, and build fish ponds. And some people would have me convert, and so at 18, 19 years old, I was converting swimming pools into aquaculture ponds and helping people raising, raise catfish in their backyard. <laughs> this was in the late 70s, and- early 80s. So by chance, you know, if any of those are still in existence out there, that'd uh, be hard to track. Yeah, actually, I wrote a book a few years ago, one of my little mini books, and I put out a notice to everybody that listens to me. I said, you know, I'm interested in your in your story, your gardening stories. Where are your unique gardening stories, that, you know, out there? And this guy named Robert in uh, Arcadia reaches out to me and he starts telling me this story about how in the late 1970s, he converted his swimming pool into a fish pond and then for the next 15 years they had a fish fry once a year and as he was telling me this story in an email i re- i was realizing that i did his swimming pool for him that was my project so uh, he was trying to take claim for your work <laughs> well no that's okay i don't have a problem with that but it's you know it's yeah it's history it's i love it i absolutely love it because really what that's what i'm up to in life is how can I how can I plant seeds for long term stuff like that to happen? I think his name was Robert Gilsdorf, and if my memory serves me, and I think he told me a couple of years ago that he had reactivated it. So very cool. Yeah, yeah. So there are so many ways that you can grow food. You just have to kind of do a little bit of research and discover what's going to work for you. You know, because well, I, I have a third of an acre. I also have a tower garden. And my tower garden is one of my most favorite toys. It is so great how it works. So there you go. Well, I know we could get high centered on these all day, but yeah. we, we wanted to cover soil before soil we, is, this segment gets so away from us. If you've been listening to me for a while, or maybe even not even a while, uh, you know that what I say is the most important thing that we can do as growers especially in the desert, is to grow healthy soil. Healthy soil is going to give you healthy plants, is going to give you healthier food. The food's going to taste better. It's going to be better for you. So your job is to grow healthy soil. And there are five components of healthy soil. They're really simple. You you have one of them already. If you live in the low desert, you have one. It's called dirt. Dirt is broken down rock. It's got micronutrients in it that are bound up in the dirt that the plants can't get a hold of. In fact, my friend Emily Rocky from uh, Tanks Green Stuff down in Tucson told me recently that there is less than 1% organic matter in desert soils. So that means the rest of it is, you know, it's 99 plus percent dirt. And dirt gets highly compacted. The water can't get into it. And there's not a whole lot of life in it. So I just actually just reviewed for three of the other components of healthy soil. So let's just run through that real quick. Dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. So that's what makes healthy soil. Because organic and live aren't the same thing. Right. 
The organic matter is your compost and your potting mix and all those great things that are already broken down that you're adding to your soil. And the life is the microorganisms, the mycorrhiza, the bacteria, the the worms, the ants that are in your soil. By the way, guys and gals, ants are not bad. In fact, they're aerating our soils for us as our gophers aerating our soils for us. So I know those are kind of a cringe when I say that, but they're doing a, you know, they're doing a, a food systems work for us out there. If the ants are digging, they're, you know, making pathways for water to get in. So what you need to know about this besides the five components, you don't even need to memorize them. The big thing you need to know is the fix. How do you fix unhealthy soil? And you fix unhealthy soil by adding organic matter, add compost, add uh, potting mix. You, what you want to add to your garden is already broken down. So wood chips is not organic matter that you want to add to your garden. You can put them on top. Some people put them on top, but I don't like doing that. So compost and potting mix goes in your garden and in your tree planting holes. Wood chips, like we were talking about your trees a little while ago, those go up on top. And I'll talk after the break. I'll talk about what that actually does. But adding organic matter is the fix. And once you add the compost, the life shows up in spades. It's amazing to me how that life shows up. Almost kind of creepy. Like, I remember planting my first tomato. I've never seen a tomato worm in eight years living in Whitman. All of a sudden, one tomato and there's tomato worms. I mean, how they just, if you build it, they will they come. come. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Wrapping up our final segment here with the urban farmer, Mr. Greg Peterson. We're just wrapping up the importance of growing soil. You want to grow anything from mm-hmm. soil, the soil will then do the work for you. Uh, a couple more key points to wrap up that. Well, going back to the fix, add organic matter and lots of organic matter. That will uh, that will jumpstart your garden at an amazing rate. If you want, like in, we talked about in the first segment, if you want to put wood chips around your trees, it's the that kind of organic matter is great. That goes on your trees, not in the planting hole. But here's what happens when you're adding organic matter. It adds life to the soil. It acts like a sponge so it holds water. It, um, um, it insulates the space around your garden. Uh, and you know, it just enlivens. It brings the soil just to life. So adding organic matter is the fix to many of your garden woes. And if we're starting small, if we picked one thing at a time and mm-hmm. we grew up from there, this isn't an expensive process. No. process. No. Composting things that were in our kitchen you know, can already solve it. We're, we could already be paying for it with what we're throwing away. Right. Right. And we, let's see, in the summertime, we always talk about composting. So pay attention then because there's a whole cool composting system that I set up at the urban farm that I'll share about this next year. Uh, So inexpensive. Let's talk that. My friend Perry, about eight, nine years ago, asked me for a garden in her backyard. I've known Perry for a long time. And so I did a, I actually did a little video. We call it Perry's Instant Garden. And I think it's on my YouTube page. 
If not, you can send me an email at greg at urbanfarm.org and I'll send you a link for it. And in an afternoon, I think I spent six hours on this and $70. And a lot more in time than you had in materials on this project. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I took two by 12s. I bought three two by 12s at the, at the local lumber store and they were eight feet long. And I cut one in half. I bought three of them. I cut one in half. And so the one I cut in half were the ends. So I had a four by eight garden and I filled it with my Greg's premium potting mix that I, uh, that I'm working on with tanks, green stuff. And we planted her garden. It was super simple. It was less than a hundred dollars. And here we are eight years later and she's still gardening in that garden box. So it can be that simple. It doesn't have to be hard. If I was, if you're thinking about putting a garden box in, you know, it's been eight years, so it might be a little bit more than a hundred dollars. One of the key pieces that I will tell you is make sure, as we talked about in the first segment, make sure that you know where your sun is at. Uh, I mentioned earlier the eastern exposure. And eastern exposure gets sun from sunup until noon. So if you can determine those parts of your yard that get morning sun, that's going to be a great place for a garden box. A southern exposure. A southern exposure gets sun all day. That can be an okay great place to put your garden box. You just have to know that, you know, in the warmer seasons, you're going to have to provide it some shade. So those are the two key pieces is where you're placing your box. Make sure you're getting morning sun. And, yeah, and then just go for it. And the name of that, again, Perry's Garden? P-A-R-R-I. Perry's Instant Garden is the uh, uh, is the name of the video. Okay. So Let's see if we can get our YouTube uh, crew behind the scenes to look that up and see if uh, if they can identify. We could get the the link. The, the to link. Share oh, that. that's easy. Yeah, that's easy. Okay. So, what about seed selection? Seed. You guys so, have the Great American Seed up every mm-hmm. September. Huge mm-hmm. conference uh, at the Baptist Church. Uh, we broadcast there live last yeah, September. There's just thousands of seeds everywhere. and You go through and you just pick them by the scoop and yep. uh, brands and varieties and pictures of you know, guads and vegetables you'd never, you'd never seen before. Where where do these seeds come from and how important is the seed that you're sticking in the soil? So it's really important. And let me just kind of review the different kinds of seeds that people may have heard of. Okay. Okay. So there's GMO or genetically modified seeds. Uh, there's lots of information on the internet that you can go look that up on. I don't really talk a whole lot about them from a gardening perspective because we don't really have to worry about getting them in our gardens because the people that make genetically modified seeds aren't selling to you know a $2 packet to the gardeners. Then there's hybrid seeds. Hybrid seeds you take watermelon A, watermelon B, you cross-pollinate them, you get watermelon C, which is, by the way, really sweet and doesn't have any seeds. Nice. Right? Hybrids are okay to plant. I don't plant a lot of them, but I wouldn't not plant something if it was a hybrid. So I'll still plant hybrid seeds. The problem with hybrid seeds is that they don't produce true the next generation. Kind of like a, a mule. It's, it's right. stale. <laughs> Exactly. It's, it's a one-time use, one life cycle. <laughs> right. Non-regenerative. <laughs> Regenerative. So what I like to use is open-pollinated seeds or heirloom seeds. And heirloom seeds... Okay, I heard you say open-pollinated mm-hmm. earlier, and I, I 
was wondering, well, what, what exactly does that mean? So that's that's an, another word from an heirloom. Yeah. They're kind of interchangeable. Heirloom and open pollinated, basically they're seeds that produce seeds that will reproduce what the parent was. So they're really reliably about that. So earlier when I said I had all those herbs and the nasturtiums and those kinds of things growing out of the urban farm, those are seeds that I planted 10 years ago. They do their entire life cycle in a year. They make more seeds. The seeds get spread out throughout the yard, and then I, you know, I get you know, parsley growing over here or cilantro growing over here. Uh, so those are the kinds of seeds that we bring into the Great American Seed Up and uh, that I suggest that people plant. Mr. Greg Peterson of The Urban Farm. You can visit him at urbanfarm.org. Yep. You have one more question? One, one more, more thing qu- real quick. And then I have one very important question for you. Okay, plant at the right time. Go get my planting calendar for the low desert. It will tell you what to plant when. Go to... Uh, plantingcalendar.org. You can download it there. Is the roof at the urban farm strong enough for Santa's sleigh and the reindeer hooves? Yes. Have you been a good enough boy? He's going to stop. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Merry, <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> to you To you too. Thank you for having me. On the 12th day of Christmas, my true love she gave to me 12 shotgun shells, 11 duck decoys, 10 pirog patties, 9 oyster stewing, Eight crabs a brewing, seven fleur-de-lis, six cypress knees, and for the last time, them five poor do. Four poos cafes, three stuffed shrimp, two voodoo dolls, and this here crawfish in this here fig tree. Man, you know, she loved me a lot. I love her too. Merry Christmas. 